Good morning, everybody. Peace be with you. Thank you. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. I, uh, after the first gathering, I walked off stage and uh, someone talked to me and said that I look like a picnic table. Um, so things are going great this morning. Um, just have one thing to do after the gathering. Burn this shirt. Um, like I said, my name is... Uh, Dodds, and uh, really glad to be with you this morning. Uh, in, this new, in this new year, we are now in the season of Epiphany, which means manifestation or appearing. And this season, in particular, commemorates the appearance of Jesus to the Magi, who were the first Gentiles to acknowledge uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And today, we're continuing our sermon series through First uh, and Second Samuel which tell of the rise and reign of King David. And we're exploring how the Bible in particular invites us to see Jesus as the subject of ancient prophecy and the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. So we've titled our series, It Is He, which is a quote from 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is searching for a new king to anoint, and when he finds David, God says, this is he. Um, Hundreds of years later, in the first New Testament book of Matthew, John the Baptist is searching for a new king, to anoint, and Jesus comes to him to be baptized, and God says, this is he. This is my beloved son. So today we are looking at a a seminal moment in 1 Samuel, the rise of King David and the tragedy of King Saul. And by the time we come to chapter 30, David has essentially become a a wandering mercenary uh, with no real home, but just wandering in the wilderness which is far from the commander position that he was appointed to by Saul, far from where he thought he'd be as the anointed and promised king heir apparent. So he's living in the wilderness with this band um, of men. Uh, They're joining up with different people groups just trying to survive. And he's just trying to make sure that his people are provided for. Uh, And the whole time he's being hunted by Saul, uh, avoiding Saul. So what we're getting to see in these two chapters today in particular is God's intended end for both pride and humility. David is patiently waiting to be given the throne. And Saul is impatiently and desperately trying to reclaim it. Uh, A number of weeks ago, in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, God had been proving himself to be the king that Israel needed. He was the He was going out before them. He was winning their battles. He was defeating their enemies. He was judging them as a people and keeping them in line with his statutes and commands. And yet, in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all of this prosperity, they ask for a human king so that they can just be like the other nations. And Samuel tells them, this is how it's going to go for you in this human king that will reign over you. He is not going to be a giver like your God. He's going to be a taker. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to make them his soldiers and his cooks. He's going to take uh, most of your income, and he's going to line his own pockets. He's going to take most of your resources, and he's just going to use them for himself. In short, this human king is going to exploit all of you in order to give himself a, a more lavish position. And yet, so it goes, the people say, We still want a king. And so God directs Samuel to a young man named Saul. Now, Saul's beginning is actually pretty auspicious. I mean, he's 
he, he comes from a, a wealthy line, this Benjaminite family, and uh, he's young, he's handsome, he's tall. Um, he looks like a king, and he's the first choice. Um, but after he's anointed and about to be presented to Israel as the king, kind of very pomp and circumstance, this really interesting thing happens. He just isn't there. He disappears. And in chapter 10, it says that he was hidden He was actually hiding, rather, among the baggage. Now, this is hardly like just a bunch of like Samsonite bags. Like this, what this is, is it's like the treasure of Israel. It's like all their stuff. So when Israel meets their king, he's hiding in in sort of the vault room. So when we meet Saul, he's already fearful of other people, and he's really greedy. He's not with the people. He's with their stuff. He may already be somewhat like the king Samuel was warning the people about. But contrast this picture from when we first meet David. He's ruggedly handsome, but he's the smallest of all of his brothers. And he doesn't even make the first cut. He's not in the first batch of choices. He's not the second, third, or fourth. He's the last choice. He wasn't even an alternate. But unlike Saul, he was... Interestingly enough, keeping the sheep. When we see Saul, he is hiding in the spoil. When we see David and meet him, he is keeping the sheep. He is already a faithful shepherd, and he's not concerned about being in center stage. And from those beginnings to our chapters today, we have seen parts of both men's character. And so as we come to the text today, let's just get our, our bearings, where, where we're actually Uh, in this story. So David and his men arrive at Ziklag on the third day. Now Ziklag, I mean, of course, David and his men are wandering around the wilderness. They come across the Philistines. They say, will you give us a place to stay? They say, sure, Ziklag is it. They go there. They drop off all of their stuff, all of their children, all of their families, and then they go off. But when they come back on the third day, the city is burned. Their wives and children and belongings are all gone. Now, the Amalekites, which are this people group, were raiding all over the area. They were going into all these different cities and plundering and stealing and taking everything, and Ziklag was just one of the cities in that line of raids. So David and his people have, have paused to mourn. They've lost everything. Circumstances could not be worse. And for David, the throne could not be further from him at this moment. So let's pick it up in verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. This is sort of covering that you would wear when you spoke with God. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired to the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, pursue For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. Now, we can probably only imagine what this was like for David and his men. Perhaps any one of us would not have hesitated to pursue this band. They've stolen everything. They've stolen our families, our belongings, everything. Thing we had every possession, it's gone. Why would we not just immediately pursue? 
God is showing us a particularity about David. He's patient. He stops and he says, before we go, I need to ask if this is the Lord, if this is what the Lord has for us, should I pursue? Do you really want me to go? See, David had already begun to act like the king that the people needed. David is not a taker. He waits for the Lord to give and to give instruction. Now, this is in direct contrast, direct contrast to Saul. If you remember, as we looked at a number of weeks ago in chapter 13, when the Philistines are mounting this offensive against Israel, and Saul is just immediately consumed with fear and anger and and a lot of anxiety. But rather than waiting for Saul, who was the priest, who was the only one who could give the sacrifices, Saul just says, okay, I'm going to do it. I can't wait any longer. I'm going to do it. He doesn't ask God for any help in any way. He is not patient like David. He does not wait. He acts. So when Samuel shows up late, Saul has all of, all of his defense ready. He says, okay, look, I, I had to do something. The Philistines are at our doorstep. All the people around us are, like all my people are abandoning me, and you weren't here. I, ha- I had to do something. I had to take this into my own hands. What was I supposed to do? Do nothing? And Samuel says, your pride Your impatience and your need to take control have cost you the throne. You will lose the throne. You will lose your kingship. And what this shows us is that Saul in his pride takes. Pride takes. Humility gives. Pride is impatient. Humility waits. David in his humility, he waits. Even when David's troops reach this brook Besor in our passage today, one-third of the entire army, one-third, they're going after, they're going after this huge Amalekite uh, sort of group of raiders, and one-third of, his, one-third of his army says, we have been marching for three or four days plus. We're tired. We're hungry. We can't go on. David doesn't push them. He doesn't take it personally. He doesn't get impatient. He leaves them with an important job. He says, okay, look after everything that we have left. Stay here and rest. Humility is merciful. David is merciful. He is aware of others. He's aware of what others need. And he is sympathetic In contrast to that, we see Saul again in chapter 14. Now what's happening is actually just after Saul has sort of been, I guess he's still stewing in the fact that Samuel chided him and told him he was going to lose the throne. Saul is completely engulfed in the fact that he's going to lose everything. And Jonathan, his son, says, hey, let's get a band together and go take out the Philistines. And when they come back and are victorious and have all this spoil and have all this food and have all these jewels and have all these riches, Saul immediately punishes all of the men and says, you're not going to eat, you're not going to drink, nothing. Takes it all away from them. His pride is so injured 
that he can't rejoice with anyone else. Pride cannot rejoice in, in other people's success. Pride can only rejoice in its own success. They're exhausted and they're hungry, and Saul basically says, well, I'm suffering. I'm suffering, and so I'm just going to make all of you suffer. Saul is unsympathetic, unaware of others. His humility is obviously lacking. As we see in verses 11 through 15, in the midst of pursuing those who had his wife and the children of his people, David comes across this Egyptian. Now, this is an Egyptian, so if you're at all aware of the history of the Egyptians and the Hebrews, you know that this is not someone with whom the Israelites would have taken really, (laughs) would have taken small issue with. This would have been a big deal. This would have been someone not only to ignore, but maybe even kill. But David, imagine this everything's been stolen. Everything's been taken. He pursues. He loses one-third of his army. He could totally feel vulnerable. He could totally take everything into his own hands. And then he comes across an Egyptian. And before he knows anything about him, he gives him food. He gives him water. And he just starts asking him questions. Before he knew anything about him, he fed him. This king is not like Saul. And he's not like the king of the nations. Do you know, you know what prideful kings do? They punish weakness. They smell weakness and they attack it. David sees weakness and he goes, how can I be merciful? How can I serve? See, this is not a king who, who hides among the spoils. This is not someone who ignores the weak. This is a king in humility who welcomes the weak, who welcomes the needy. He serves among the people. He shares with everyone. And he shares with both those who went to fight with him and those who stayed who couldn't fight because they were exhausted. Let's look at verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. It's so interesting. David leads this band. They take over. They take back everything that was lost. They raid the Amalekites. They get back everything. They get back every person, everything, every possession, it all. And they ride back and saying, this is David's. It's all his. And what does he do? He takes it. And he immediately just disperses it. He gives it to those who stayed behind, who didn't fight. He gives it to those who did fight. But even more than that, he spreads it out to all the other places. He basically, they distinguish, like, who was this taken from? And then he returns it to that city. This is a generous king. A generous king who spreads the spoil of his victory across the nations. David emerges with all this spoil, and he terms it as a gift to the world. This is David, the generous giver, the generous king. And even if the men put up a fight and say, wait, 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 we fought, they didn't fight, we get more. 
And David says, who has really given this to us? It was God. It was a gift. It's for everyone. It's not just for some. It's for all. See, in this act, he was returning everything they had stolen and creating a political and relational equity that spanned across cities and miles, all kinds of distance to the surrounding people. Through this benevolence and humility, David was proving himself to be this incredible giver king, not like Samuel had said. A human king would reign. He was repurposing all of his victory to benefit other nations, not just Israel. But at the very same time that David is missing nothing and getting everything and rising up, Saul is losing everything. He's losing it all. Saul was a committed taker to the end. He wouldn't even let God take his life. He took it himself. Because in Saul, what we see is the king is dead, and yet in David, long live the king. David's victory came on the third day. Saul's death came on the third day. A king that died and rose. Saul had tried to establish his king, kingship through taking, and David had established his kingship rule through giving. Even though the throne could not have looked any further from his reach, in the most dire circumstances, David continued to wait for the Lord to give him what was promised. We know on two occasions, David had Saul right in front of him. And he had two sets of people that said to him at both occasions, this is the throne right in front of you. Just take it. Just take it. I know that you're going to be king. You know that you're going to be king. Saul knows that you're going to be king. He says it. He said it, he said it multiple times. Just take it. And David says, I will not take Saul's life into my hands. I will give both of our lives into the Lord's hands. This could all end right now. But see, David's not that prideful king. Pride cannot receive a gift. It has to earn everything. Pride refuses gifts. Pride says, I will earn it. Humility conversely, seems, sees everything as a gift. It sees all of life as a gift. That's the only way that David can relent against Saul because he's not waiting on Saul. He's waiting on the gift giver. At the beginning of this series, Drew, uh, Drew Knowles, one of the other pastors here, brought our attention to Hannah's prayer at the very beginning of this book. And he said that Essentially, her prayer would act as a, a table of contents for us during this study. I think it's really interesting, verse 6 of 1 Samuel 2. It says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. This is a picture of David and Saul. Hannah, in her prayer, 
It's basically God who is saying through Hannah's prayer, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm like. This is how I operate. David was raised up. Saul was brought down. But it's also a promise to us and to all the world. This is actually a promise from God of his generosity because this is what our God is doing through his son Jesus. We see this very thing fulfilled, this very scripture fulfilled in Christ Jesus. God the Father brings the son down on the cross and raises him up through his resurrection and ascension. Like Psalm 2 states, God has placed his king on the throne. My king is on his holy hill in Zion. This is pointing to Saul and David, but it's also pointing to something so much greater. The fulfillment of Christ as the better king, the best king, the only king. How can we face life like this sojourn? How do we throw off pride and welcome humility? Because we can't resolve just merely to think less about ourselves or to think about ourselves less. We can't be changed by an act of sheer will. We have to see that we don't deserve anything from God but judgment. And yet we must see ourselves as the object of his greatest mercy. Because in Christ, we see this very scripture played out. Justice and mercy meet. Jesus is brought down, and simultaneously God intends to raise him up on the third day, the same three days in which David rose and Saul went down. This is more than mere coincidence. I think we see it even clearer here in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, because of that humility, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. See what Paul is trying to get us to see? This was the highest God who humbled himself to the lowest point, and the Father would exalt him to the highest place. There is a truer and better, grander king than David. Jesus Christ was the humble giver king. Even when Satan himself pulls Jesus up in front of all the kingdoms in the world and says, just say the word and I'll give them all to you. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to take it. My father has promised to give it to me and I will wait for him. He humbled himself all the way to death and waited for the father to exalt him. See, what was promised to David? was fulfilled in Jesus. Let's look at Luke 1. See, we have, remember we have Hannah, this barren girl that has a, a prophet, priest's son, and now we fast forward all the way to 
Mary. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. See, David wasn't the only humble, anointed king who waited for the throne. He was just a shadow and just a type. Jesus was the one who would come to rule for all eternity. See, on the cross, where it seemed as though the throne could not have been further away from Jesus, the Father gave it to him. Even though Jesus was more of a giver king than David ever could be, on the cross he was treated as more of a taker than Saul ever was. And that all in order to make us all into a people of giver king, giver kings. And like David, but so much more than David, he recovered all that was taken. In Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he claimed all the spoil. And he shared it with all the world by grace as a gift. That's why we can say that in Christ we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Why? Because Jesus gave it all to us. In his life, death, and resurrection, he earned all the spoil there was. And by his grace through faith, he shares it all, all the spoil of heaven with us. The ultimate giver king to free us from our pride, to free us from our proud hearts and to bring us low in humility where life and mercy and empathy and sympathy and patience are found and enjoyed. So how do we pursue humility and fight our proud hearts? There's so many ways. There's so many ways. But I'd like to just say a few. And we've already talked about humility is merciful Humility is patient. Humility is sympathetic. Humility is empathetic. But I think there are also just three things that we can do. Three things. To pursue humility and to repent from pride. To repent from taking our life into our own hands and treating it as our own and pursuing humility where we see everything as a gift. Everything as mercy. We ask, we wait, and we give. Hannah and David, they asked. Hannah, in her anxiety and vexation and confusion and anger, poured out her soul before the Lord and said, give me a baby. And the Lord remembered her. But she asked. But what, but what are we doing in asking? We're admitting need. We're admitting, I don't, I don't have it. I don't have it all. I need, I have a deficit. I'm asking for something. David, David asked because he didn't know. I don't know what to do. Lord, will you guide me? Lord, will you speak to me? Lord, will you show me? Lord, will you correct me? My goodness, go and look at all the Psalms and you can see David and all of Israel encouraged to go before the Lord and to ask and petition and speak Let's ask before we act. That's how we can fight pride. We come and say, this is your life. 
This is your home. This is your money. This is, your, this is all yours. What do you want me to do with it? Number two, wait. Gosh, I think we'll be studying this for the rest of our lives. Psalm 25.3, those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. The best that I can come up with right now is just that if we're, if we're waiting on anyone or anything that isn't God, we're just gonna, we're gonna regret it later. We're gonna go, I shouldn't, I, that was wasted time. Waiting on my spouse to be nicer, waiting on this promotion to come, waiting on this person, friend, thing, and, and I waited on them and I didn't go to the Lord and wait on him to be my advocate, to be my refuge, to be my strength and my place of security. I went to this person or this thing and I regret it. The Psalms are full of language to get us to come to the Lord and wait. Because waiting on the Lord is not like waiting on a bus. (laughs) It's not mindless. Gosh, I can disengage from waiting on an Uber. It's just like, I mean, I could just go comatose. But if I'm waiting on the Lord, if we're waiting on the Lord, we have to be in it. We have to be in it. But I can tell you that it's got to be, waiting on the Lord has got to be, instead of seizing, it's waiting. Instead of speed, it's slow. It's patient. It's not hasty. It's thoughtful. It's not reactive. These are the things that mean waiting on the Lord. And finally, giving. Gosh, a one way to fight pride and greed Give away your money. And I'm not saying that just because we're in the middle of a capital campaign. (laughs) Um, I swear I'm not. It just happens to be that that's what's happening today. And the season that we're in. But I don't want you to miss this. Like it really is some, it really is a point of repentance for us as Christians. How do I fight greed? Give away the thing that you're greedy for. See it as a gift from God that you have a spoil that you've been given that you would gladly share with the rest. Jesus has shared all the spoil with us. How can we freely give of what we've been given? Even our time, our home, our every, our everything, things that we have, our gifts, our talents, we can share because we have been given. I mean, even Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you did not receive? Did you earn anything? Did you decide when you were born? Did you decide your siblings and your family and the town you were born in, the time? And No. No, all of that was determined by God himself. We have so little control over so much in our life. We have been given gifts repeatedly by God. Um, Yeah. Everything that's happened to us, everything we have, It's been a gift. Humility says it's all a gift. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are grateful for the fact that you, gosh, that you are a God who continually serves us. God, you served Hannah in her pain. served David in his fear, served, even served Saul in his 
prideful heart, you sent Samuels and Davids and, gosh, men in his band to say, will you relent? Will you stop? You sent so many people. You're sending people to us all the time, um, Lord, to speak to us and to, gosh, to, to guide us in a, in a particular way. And God, we want to be, we want to hear you. We want to follow you. Jesus, we want to submit to you as the good shepherd. Holy Spirit, we want to submit to you as the wise counselor. Father, we want to bend a knee to you as our king, as our Lord. Father, make us this kind of people the kind of people who are free from pride, who are freed regularly from pride and who are captivated by your humility and in beholding your humility that you would, by the power of your spirit, make us more deeply into a, a family of giver kings who are eager, who are eager to ask, who are eager to wait, who are eager to give. Lord, help us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.